Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My rock, my redeemer, my strength, my Lord. Amen. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's been addressing a lot of different topics, a lot of different issues. I mean, we're on part six, for goodness sake, right? And we even skipped some of those issues beforehand. We haven't even covered them all. And it's really easy to go down side roads with some of these issues. To actually get so focused on the trees that you miss the forest. And that is why we have had the through line of the gospel. Because it is in the gospel that we find his love, his grace, his mercy. It is the gospel that unites us. It is the gospel that provides unity for the entire church. So important. So important is the gospel for the church. That the early church fathers, the the reformers, the early reformers, got together in 1530 in the city called Augsburg. And they gathered around and they put together a list, a document of core essential beliefs for what it means to be Christian within the Lutheran tradition. We call this document the Augsburg Confession. And it's actually one of the documents, the Augsburg Confession, that we in the AFLC subscribe to or that we hold to. And they covered a lot of different essential topics. And one of the topics was, well, what is the church? What provides unity for the church? And so I want to read to you just a little bit what they said. It is also taught that at all times there must be and remain one holy Christian church. It is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is purely preached and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. And then it goes on. For this is enough for the true unity of the Christian church, that there is the gospel preached harmoniously according to the pure understanding and the sacraments administered in conformity with the divine word. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice, really, that there are what they would call two marks of the Christian faith there are, uh, of the church. The two marks, there's actually more than two, but two essential ones are this. One is that the gospel is purely preached. That means according to his word. Not according to our, our desires, our thoughts, our feelings, but according to the word. That's the first mark. The second mark is that the sacraments are administered properly according to the gospel. So what are the sacraments? The sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what the Reformers said 
is if you mess up any two of these, the gospel or the sacraments, if you mess those up, there's not unity in the church. The church at Corinth messed up both of them. That's why we've been covering this. So they not only messed up the gospel, they messed up the sacrament itself. And we're going to cover the Lord's Supper. That's the sacrament that we are going to uh, be learning about today. And in keeping with simplicity for this particular series, three things. What it is not, what it is, and how should you prepare for it. So we're going to begin with what it is not. We go to our, our scripture reading. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. So here, Paul doesn't pull any punches, right? He's actually giving a very stern rebuke to the Corinthians. And he's giving the stern rebuke because what they are doing dishonors God. And if you take a look throughout Scripture, when God's people dishonors Him, there's a very strong rebuke. So Paul, in keeping with what God has said, gives them a very strong rebuke because what they're doing is not for the better, but for the worse. So what are they doing exactly? Well, verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 21. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So let me explain a little bit of what was going on. The early Christian churches, the body of believers, would gather in somebody's home, because at that time, there were not church structures like we have as church structures. So they would gather in somebody's home. Now, Imagine all of us going into somebody's home, right? It would fill up pretty fast. And what you had is you would have them going to the wealthier homes because they were larger. So you had the early church coming to the wealthier homes, but the wealthy people had a smaller formal dining area. Not everybody could fit there. But they also had an atrium and more people could fit there. But this is what they were doing. They were saying, okay, you of higher social status, you get to eat with us in the formal dining room. You, you lower people, you're out in the atrium. So they were making social divisions, the haves and the have-nots. And Paul rebukes them on this. Whereas the Lord's Supper was to be one of unity within the body, there was social division. Earlier in chapter 10, he said this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But not only this, the wealthy 
The wealthy were eating the best foods in excess, and they were drinking in excess, while those who were poor and probably hungry had little to none. This is what was going on. It was pure selfishness and division within the what was supposed to be a meal where you would come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper in which there was supposed to be unity. So he says this, verse 22, what? I mean, there's almost, almost like an exclamation point. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Can't you eat and drink before you come here? Or, and listen to this rebuke though, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, the Lord's Supper is not just a meal or a gathering. And those who create factions based on social status, who have little or no care of others, aren't just acting carelessly or callously. They are despising not only the other believers, they are despising Christ Jesus, and they are despising the sacrament itself. This is the seriousness of what's going on. That's why in verse 27, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. So this is the rebuke. What it is not. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, let's go to our text again. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you. By the way, when Paul says he received from the Lord uh, what he received from the Lord, it's not that he received this by direct revelation. He actually received this from the apostles. It doesn't diminish at all what he received because he is teaching exactly what the apostles taught. They were there. They were present. So he says, I received this from the Lord, just as the apostles received this from the Lord. So the question is, what did they receive? The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. To get the depth and breadth of what's happening here, you have to remember that they were celebrating. What, what were they celebrating that night? It was Passover. They were remembering, celebrating the very first Passover. For you to get the depth and breadth of what Jesus celebrated and what happened that night, you have to understand the first Passover. Now, I have covered this in depth and breadth uh, various times, various places, mostly on Monday, Thursday. So that's the night in which Jesus would have celebrated the Passover before Good Friday. 
but I thought it would be appropriate to do it here Sunday. So briefly, in brief, let's recall what the first Passover was all about. Recall, if you if you will, that the Israelites were under the Egyptian yoke of slavery. God had told Pharaoh nine times to let the people go, and each time he refused. And there were plagues. The plagues uh, included uh, the river turning into blood, frog, locusts, hail. Yet Pharaoh would not relent, would he? So there was to be a tenth plague. And the tenth plague was on that night. Death would pass over the houses, all the houses in Egypt. And the firstborn, whether Egyptian or not, would die unless the blood of the lamb was found on the doorpost. This is the first plague. And death would pass over if the blood was on the doorposts. So, there are five things I'd like you to consider from the first Passover because they have direct correlation to the Passover that Jesus celebrated. The first, and they're just going to be all listed here for you. The first is that it was instituted by God. Moses did not make this up. This came directly from God himself. And it took place at a very specific time, history. And Moses and the Israelites were told that, excuse me, this was to be observed as a statute forever. This was a command, a statute that God gave that was to be observed forever. Our word couldn't change it. Our desires couldn't change it. The only thing that could change it is God himself. Another aspect is Passover and sacrifice cannot be separated. You can't have the Passover without a sacrifice. And the sacrifice had to be a perfect, spotless, without blemish lamb, or could be goat if you had you didn't have the lamb. But it had to be perfect, without blemish. The other thing is, real blood was used. You couldn't use just paint. You couldn't use a chalk or something like that. Real blood was spilled because it was life for life. Life is in the blood. And so a life was actually given so that they were spared. And the final point is lives actually were spared. It wasn't just a symbolic thing that the Israelites had to do. This had a very real present effect. You would hear all of the cries, all of the wailing throughout Egypt because the firstborn had been killed. But here, they were safe because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's the first Passover. I think you already can make some connections, but let's make sure that we make them and that we are very clear about the Passover that Jesus celebrated and instituted. It is known as the Lord's Supper. The first is that it was instituted by Jesus as a new covenant. 
He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a sacred a sacred promise. And it's a promise that God had made Himself. And I know we normally talk about Old Testament and New Testament. But I think the better language is the covenant. The covenant that God made with Israel. And now that there is a new covenant that Jesus is making with the world. And who has the ability to change a covenant that God made? Only God himself can change that covenant. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the old covenant has been fulfilled and it is no longer binding. And now we have a new covenant in place and the new covenant is what binds us. This is the first thing that has taken place. The second is that the new covenant is to be remembered and observed until his second coming. So how long is this statute in place? Well, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he repeats this, Luke 22, verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It is clear when he comes, there will be a marriage feast of the Lamb and us, the church, his bride. And on that day, the fruit of the vine will again be poured out and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And thus we are to celebrate that in remembrance. He says, uh, Paul writes, in, for as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, I'm sorry, for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, let's talk about this though. We know how long it will be. But we are to do this in remembrance of him. What is that remembrance about? A lot of people think the remembrance is just uh, recalling a reminiscence of what God had done, what Jesus had done. You know, like we get together and we just kind of remember. We tell stories, we joke a little bit. But that's not what the Hebrew word remembrance really means. It means not only the past, but it has a present effect. It's in the here and now. So when when the thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom, when you come into your kingdom, was he just saying, hey, Jesus, think fondly of me when you were, you know, when you go to your kingdom? No, he said, no, remember me in the present. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not just a past, but it has a present effect. That's what he's talking about in remembrance. And the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice of Jesus cannot be separated. The very words themselves, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood for the... uh, 
For this is my blood of the covenant. If you take away the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, the Lord's Supper, it means nothing. This is what happened in the church of Corinth. They had truly separated the sacrifice, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, apart from the meal itself. And this is why Paul is so harsh on them. So let's recap so far, right? The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus as a new covenant. The new covenant is remembered and observed until we are with him in glory. And the Lord's Supper and sacrifice of Jesus go hand in hand. Now, all churches throughout the world, all Christian churches throughout the world, should be in unity in that. I would say if they are not in unity of that, they are just like the church in Corinth. They have gone far astray. But is that all that this is about? Is that all that the Lord's Supper is about? And indeed, there are two other important points. The the point is that the body and blood are truly present, not just symbolic. And that's the crux of the matter, right? See, everybody believes that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, but it has bothered many, many people. I mean, what did he mean? There are a lot of denominations, Methodist, Baptist, non-denominational, all of that, who say it symbolizes the body. It symbolizes the blood. They go so far as to actually change Scripture to reinforce that particular doctrine. I've heard pastors say, this symbolizes the body of Christ. This symbolizes the blood of Christ. But here's the issue. The structure of the Greek language is very precise here. And is means is in this structure. It can never mean symbolize or to represent. So if I say, this is my hand, am I saying, this symbolizes my hand? No, it's my hand, right? That's the same grammatic structure that we have in Scripture. This is my body. This is my blood. But the, the question, and, and, and by the way, Paul also wrote this in chapter 10, verse 16. He said, this is what we participate in. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, but this drives people batty, doesn't it? Non-theological word, batty. I mean, how do we understand this? Does the bread turn into his body? Does the wine turn into his blood? And there are some religious denominations that say, yes, that happens. It becomes the actual, uh, it it turns the, the, the substance of it. The the essence of it actually turns into the blood. The essence of it turns into the body. But when you have communion, the bread tastes like bread, right? And the wine or the juice tastes like wine or juice. Right? 
So here we have the bread, the wine, but Jesus also said, this is my body. This is my blood. So how are we to understand that? Luther put it this way in the small catechism. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. So we say his true body and blood are truly present. The wine is still wine. The bread is still bread. And he is present, both in body and blood. See, we don't try to explain how this occurs. We simply take Jesus at his word and let it stand. Because if you try to explain how this occurs, you go off on one side or the other. The bread's just bread, the wine's just wine. But when God gives his word to it, when he binds his word to it, it becomes more than just bread or more than just wine. It becomes a sacrament, a visible means of grace. Just as in baptism, water's water, but it is the water and the word, and it makes a visible means of God's grace. When the elements of bread and wine are bound with God's word, it becomes a visible means of God's grace. So what is God's grace? God's grace is the forgiveness of sin. That's God's grace. And when we partake of God's grace, we are forgiven and strengthened in our faith because we know that is what we are receiving. This is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, there is truly forgiveness of sin. Matthew chapter 26, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Isn't that the gospel message? You see, this cup right here, it's not just wine. It is God's grace, a visible means of forgiveness of sin, is the gospel given to you, visibly. And we need, does God, does God need the wine or the bread to have something be sacred? No, we do. We need that visible, that visible measure of God's grace. So this is what we receive. True forgiveness. Now, not in the past, because on the cross, when Jesus died, did he forgive the sins for those around him who believed in him? Yes. Did, when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, did he forgive your sins then? Now, in the present, in the present. And we have the present in front of us right now in the Lord's Supper. So there's no mere 
remembrance. It's no mere ordinance. It's not just a ritual we go through. But it is a new covenant that Jesus gave to us. That is what we celebrate. So the question is, how do you prepare for that, right? How do you prepare to receive such grace? It says this, let a person examine himself then. So, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we are to examine ourselves, right? Does Now, there are church traditions that say you have to fast before you can receive the Lord's Supper, communion. There are others that say you must go to confession before you receive the Lord's Supper. And there are others who say, well, you really can't be in any state of sin unless to receive the Lord's Supper. So I would say that those, those, those are all barriers for the Lord's Supper. See, if the Lord's Supper is about forgiveness of sin, do you, can, must you be sinless to receive it? No. We come to receive and to be strengthened in our faith. So I'm going to use the words of Luther here. And by the way, you may have forgotten or never noticed how to prepare for the Lord's Suppers on your sermon notes. Every single week it's there. And I am going to use Luther's statement here because I can't do any better than what he did. He said this, In order that you may receive this holy sacrament in a worthy manner, you should carefully consider what you must now believe and do. From the words of Christ, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you for the remissions of sin. You should believe that Jesus Christ is present with his body and his blood as the words declare. From Christ's words for the remission of sins, you should also believe that Jesus gives to you his body and blood to strengthen your assurance that your sins are forgiven. And finally, you should do as Christ commands you when he says, take, eat, drink of it, all of you, this do in remembrance of me. If you believe these words of Christ and do as he has commanded them, then you have properly examined yourselves and may eat Christ's body and drink his blood in a worthy manner. You should also unite in giving thanks to Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for such a great gift, and should love one another with a pure heart, and thus with the whole Christian church have comfort and joy in Christ our Lord. To this end, may God the Father give you his grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to offer forgiveness of sin, which creates unity with Christ and unity with one another. So as you come before the Lord's Supper in just a little while here, examine yourself what you must believe, 
what you must do. Amen.